So today we uh, begin a new sermon series. We finished our Lenten sermon series and then, of course, celebrated Good Friday and Easter last week. But now we're getting into a new sermon series from the book of Philippians. And this is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in the city of Philippi. This was actually the first church planted in Europe. And about 10 years after Paul and his teammates planted this church in Philippi, he writes this letter. He is now in prison in Rome awaiting a sentence or a verdict. And he uh, is writing to his friends in Philippi, a church that has been supporting his ministry and actually been supporting his life in prison. Paul writes this letter to his friends in Philippi. There's a lot of affection that he feels to this particular church. Now the question you may be having this morning is why preach through Philippians now? Let me give you three points of connection that we have with the Philippian church and with this letter. Number one, this is a thank you letter for the Philippians' support of Paul's ministry. And so Paul is communicating with people he knows, people he loves, but he's communicating with them through letters, unable to see them face to face, which of course has been our experience as we live in quarantine. We're not able to see each other, so we're communicating through Facebook and phone calls and letters, things like that. So I think we can relate to what Paul is feeling here a little bit. Secondly, Paul is in prison, probably in Rome, awaiting a verdict that will either bring freedom to him or death. We too can identify with that feeling of uncertainty in our future, waiting for things to get resolved. And finally, the third reason, the most important reason, is that this letter is about joy. The words joy or rejoice occur 16 times in this short letter. And even though Paul's circumstances are very difficult, he is able to rejoice. And he's teaching Philippians, the Philippian believers, how to experience this deep, real joy, no matter what the circumstances are. I love how Psalm 4-7 puts it. This has been, for me in my Christian life, a description of, of joy. Psalm 4, verse 7 puts it, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. It's a prayer the psalmist is addressing God, and he says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Can we say today that we have more joy than those who live lives of abundance? as we fight for joy during this pandemic. I think the book of Philippians can help us. So this morning, I'd like to focus on the first two verses of the letter. I'm actually going to take my time going through this letter. So let me read Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This simple greeting, 
that we often overlook get to the meat of the letter. The simple greeting gives us the foundation for our joy. These are the preliminaries of joy. The foundational things that we need to grasp before we can fight for joy in our circumstances. So let's look at the simple greeting under two headings. Number one, what we are in Christ, namely servants and saints. And number two, what we have in Christ, namely grace and peace. What we are in Christ and what we have in Christ, this gives us the foundation for our joy. So if you're struggling for joy this morning, this is the beginning point. This is the starting point of how we can start really fighting for it, how we can start really growing in our joyfulness, even in the midst of, for some of us, very difficult circumstances. So what are we in Christ? Paul does not refer to himself or Timothy as apostles, as an apostle of Christ, as he does in many of his other letters. For example, in Galatians, he talks about being an apostle of Christ, coming with authority, coming to teach, coming to correct, coming to rebuke. But this is not his purpose in this letter. He comes as a servant. He calls himself and his co-worker Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. Now, we'll see this theme of servanthood, this theme of humility develop throughout the letter. But from the very beginning, Paul puts every Christian on equal footing, no matter what our positions are in the world or in the church. As Christians, we are all Christ's servants. We begin there. We're Christ's servants. I wonder if this is how you think of yourself this morning, as a servant of Christ. Now, the term Paul is using is rather strong. He means a bondservant or slave. In the Roman world of the time, this is a familiar reality. As, as much as a half of, of the Roman population were servants or slaves, and so Paul is using something that is familiar, in fact, something that is very negative in the culture, as it is for us today when we think about slavery. He's using that to describe our relationship with Christ in very positive terms. But we've got to get the term. We've got to understand what, what he means by that. He's talking about permanent, full-time service. This is a job without breaks or vacations. It takes precedence over everything else in life. It requires absolute commitment and devotion. The will of the master determines the life of the servant. This is our relationship with Christ. This is how Paul introduces himself and by implication defines all Christians. We often refer to Christians as followers of Christ or disciples of Christ. But what does that mean? It means going where he goes. It means doing what he does, thinking what he thinks, feeling what he feels. To follow someone, to follow Christ in particular, is to have our whole lives defined by that relationship. Jesus leads and we follow. Jesus commands and we obey. Pastor Clarence Jackson 
from Grace Bible Church who preached here at our church on Unity Sunday last October, typically, almost always, begins his prayers by addressing God as Master. He starts praying by saying, Master. Such a beginning shapes the whole prayer. Here is a servant talking to his master with respect, with reverence, with eagerness to receive his next assignment, with readiness to obey. I wonder if this is how you see your relationship with Jesus today, as a servant serving his master. I think most of our issues in the church today stem from our false perception of what we are in relation to Christ. Practically, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it on behalf of the Christian church today in the West especially, but practically many Christians see Jesus as their follower, not as their master. He comes to help us when we need him. He is there waiting for us to call on him. Now, of course, Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to give his life, to sacrifice himself in order to save us. And in fact, Paul will be writing about that in chapter 2 of Philippians, describing that great humility of Christ, who became a slave, became a servant for us. That is true. But his service makes us his servants. His sacrifice enables us to sacrifice for him. To become a Christian in the New Testament terms is to die to yourself, to give your whole life to Jesus. Christianity is not seasonal employment or extracurricular activity or a hobby or a spiritual thing that you do on the side. We are Christ's servants and he is our master. The paradox of true Christianity is that only in our absolute submission to Christ we find genuine freedom. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This has been the experience of many Christians throughout the centuries. By serving Christ, we have become free. By putting our lives into his hands, we have experienced real life. By losing ourselves to him, by giving up our life for him, we have found real life. While many assignments we get from our master are very difficult, we rejoice in our relationship with him and in the opportunity to serve the one who has given his life for us. You know, for many Christians, it is a delight, it is a blessing, it is a privilege just to be able to serve him, to be considered among his servants. We have so much gratitude for what Christ has done for us that we find joy, real joy, deep joy, true joy, as Paul does, in serving him, in sacrificing 
ourselves for him. Paul is in prison. And he is there because his master wants him there. He understands that. He has a reason to be where he is. There is meaning in his suffering for Christ's sake. And that is why, in part, that is why he can be joyful. Oh, that we would all be able to say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you a servant of Jesus? Do you live like a servant of Jesus your whole life being defined by that relationship and drawing joy from that, feeling privileged to suffer for him, privileged to serve him? That's the first designation of what we are in Christ. We are servants. But secondly, we are saints. This is how Paul addresses the Philippian Christians. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And what does Paul mean by saints? Does he mean the super spiritual committed, elite Christians at Philippi? Does he mean those who have distinguished themselves by great miracles and sacrifices? Those that we can look up to and pray to maybe even? No. Paul is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. All the saints. Meaning he's writing to the whole church. To everybody in the church, every Christian in the church. He mentions overseers and deacons. So, overseers are elders or pastors. It's the same term that's used of those who are given the position of spiritual authority in the church, who teach, who lead, who make decisions, who pray for, care for the flock. Like we have here, we have elders here. And then there's deacons. Deacons are the servants of the church. They have leadership in their serving. They govern particular ministries. They take care of the physical needs of people in the church. And we have deacons here as well at Chatham. We're following the biblical model of church government. So Paul mentions elders and deacons to make sure that this letter is read in the church, that this letter is is given to every person in the church, that everybody hears what Paul has to say because he's addressing Everyone in the congregation, all the saints. In Paul's usage, in the New Testament usage, saint applies to every Christian. Now, saint, the word saint, means holy, holy one. The one who is set apart. The one who is devoted to God, designated for God. In the Old Testament, there were, there were sacred, holy utensils and holy pieces of furniture that were used in the temple. They were set aside, designated to be used for special service to God in the temple. You couldn't just bring in any bread. It had to be holy bread. You couldn't just go into any clothing into the Holy of Holies. You had to wear special priest's clothing that was sanctified. It was made holy by rituals, by devoting it to God. 
This is where this idea of, of holiness, of being a saint, comes from. When Christ, our new temple, died and rose again, when he was, he was destroyed and on the third day he rose again, those who are in him, those who are part of this new temple now, part of this new people of God, are called saints, we're called holy. Not because of our behavior, not because of our accomplishment, but because we have been made holy in Christ. When somebody comes to Christ through conversion, through believing in Jesus, we are transferred into a new sphere. We are now considered to be in Christ. That's one of the most common phrases used in the New Testament. We are in Christ. We used to be in Adam, used to be under condemnation, used to be profane, unholy, separated from God. And now we've been found by God and we've been made holy in Christ by entering this new spiritual sphere, by being welcomed into God's family, God's people, God's church. We have become holy. We have become saints. We've been set apart by Christ's work on the cross and in the empty tomb. We've been made holy by Him because He is holy. Now let me illustrate this transition into a new status, into a new sphere from the origins of the Philippian church. The background for the beginnings of the Philippian church comes from Acts 16. And, and I won't read it to you, but I'll recap three big events here. And it will tell you how these people were converted, how they've been transferred into a new sphere in Christ, and how now Paul can, calls them, can call them saints as he can call any Christian a saint, one that's been made separate for Christ, made holy by Christ's work. There are three incidents recorded in Acts 16 that help us understand how the church in Philippi started. Now first, there was the encounter with Lydia. Paul, in response to this vision of the Macedonian man, this vision that he got from God where a man dressed as a Macedonian, as somebody from Philippi, from that province where the city of Philippi was, came to Paul in a dream and, and he called him to come, come and help us. So in that vision, as the Holy Spirit forbid Paul and his teammates go to any other area, with the help of that vision, Paul now comes to Philippi and the first thing that happens is he meets Lydia. As Paul's custom was, he goes to look for a synagogue for Jewish believers in the area, and he finds no synagogue, but he finds a prayer gathering of Jewish believers and Gentiles who were interested in the Jewish faith by the riverside outside of the city. And so he goes there, and he encounters uh, Lydia. Lydia is a, a merchant from Thyatira. She's a foreigner to that city, comes from another area. But she's a Gentile interested in the religion of the Jews. And so Paul meets her, preaches the gospel to that little group, little prayer meeting, and Lydia becomes a believer. She is now found by God, found by the riverside, and called by God to become a Christian. Now this is how any one of us comes to Christ. We are found by God. The Word of God comes to us and finds us wherever we are, by the river, at a prayer meeting, in our homes, at our jobs, in our neighborhood. Somebody comes to speak to us this gospel of hope, and God finds us with it. So Lydia 
was found by God, and she became a Christian, transferred from one spiritual sphere into another, becoming in Christ, becoming a saint. Have you been found by God's grace? Are you a saint? Now, secondly, the second event that happened at Philippi as Paul was ministering there, there was a slave girl who had this supernatural demonic gift of fortune-telling. She was bringing a great income to her owners. She was also interfering with Paul's ministry. And at one point, Paul, tired of that intrusion, he cast the demon out with the authority of Christ. He frees this girl, this poor girl. He frees her from the oppression of a demon. This is another image of Christian conversion. We are freed from whatever controls us, whatever defines us. When Jesus comes into our lives, he replaces whatever our idol is, whatever our master is functionally. And so he becomes our master. So Lydia was found by God's grace. The slave girl was freed by God's grace. Have you been freed by God's grace yourself? Or are you still controlled by someone or something else? And thirdly, the third big event that happened at Philippi is is Paul and Silas' experience in the Philippian jail and the conversion of the jailer. The owners of the slave girl were not at all happy that she no longer had that demonic gift of fortune-telling, and thus their income has dried up. So they accused Paul and Silas of disturbing the city, introducing new foreign customs into the city, and maybe even objecting to Caesar's rule. And so they put them in jail. They beat them, and they put them in jail. Paul and Silas, at night are in shackles, praying in that jail and singing. In fact, singing loudly enough for the other prisoners to hear them, praising God, rejoicing in suffering. We can say that the Philippian church was converted by joy, that their experience, the roots of the Philippian church are found in the joy of Paul and Silas in the midst of suffering. And so when Paul and Silas are praying and they're singing hymns, they're rejoicing, all of a sudden there's an earthquake. The doors of the prison were flung open, the chains fell off the prisoners, and the jailer, probably awakened by that, is is terrified and ready to kill himself. Why? Well, the prisoners are going to escape, or he thought they escaped. That means he has failed. That means that he will be put to death anyway. So he gets his sword and is ready to kill himself. And Paul stops him. And he tells him, don't worry. Nobody has escaped. Everybody is here. You are safe. And the jailer, overwhelmed with that unexpected favor, says, what should we do? What must we do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And so the whole household, not just the jailer, but his family, everybody who's there, actually puts their trust in Christ because they feel favored by God. Favored, saved, rescued from death, favored by God. 
Now, there, there's also a cultural meaning here, because Philippi was a Roman city, it was a Roman colony, even though it was in Greece and Macedonia. It was a Roman colony, it had a special status. They were exempt from certain taxes, they had Roman law, they all spoke Latin, by the way. Paul is writing in Greek, which of course everybody knew, and he's writing primarily to the Greek speakers of the city, not to the Latin speakers, the elite the Romans, they treasured their status, they treasured their culture. But the gospel comes not to the elite, not to the Latins, not to the Romans of Philippi. Who does it come to? Lydia, a foreigner, an immigrant to the city. A slave girl possessed by a demon. And a jailer in the Philippian prison. God favored them. God found them. God freed them. But this is how the gospel always comes to us. It comes to the unlikely, the undeserving, the forgotten. It is the gospel of grace, the gospel of favor. God favors us not because we deserve it. It wouldn't be favor otherwise, but because we are loved by him. We're not accepted with him because of our status or accomplishment or our moral achievement, or our culture. It's by grace. Paul tells the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It is because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. His death for our sins on the cross, His glorious resurrection from the dead. It is because of that that we can claim favor with God. Because Jesus did something for us. He found us. He favored us. He freed us. Have you experienced God's favor in Christ? Found, freed, favored. This is why Paul can call all Christians in Philippi saints, set apart, holy ones, not, not because of us. You see, they haven't been set apart, made holy by their own accomplishments, neither have we. If you are a Christian, if you are a saint, in other words, just the same, it's a different term, but if you're a saint in Christ, you know that this transformation happened not because of something you did, but something that Jesus did for you. I find it interesting that whether you really are a Christian actually depends on your understanding of what Paul means by saints. If you think you can only be a saint if you have accomplished great things for God, avoided all sin, sacrificed more than others for God, or lived an exemplary moral life, if you think that's what makes you a saint, you're not really a Christian. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a Welsh preacher of the 20th century, explaining this, this very important reality and how to how to work through that yourself or when you share in the gospel with someone else. Lloyd-Jones says that after I've explained the gospel to someone, uh, then I have said, well, now you are quite happy about it. Do you believe that? And they say, yes. Then I say, well, then, are you now ready to say that you are a Christian? And they hesitate. 
Lloyd-Jones says, and I know that they have not understood. Then I say, what is the matter? Why are you hesitating? And they say, I do not feel that I am good enough. At once I know that in a sense I have been wasting my breath. They are still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea still is that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. Good enough to be accepted with Christ. They have to do it. I am not good enough. It sounds very modest, but it is the lie of the devil. It is a denial of the faith. You think that you are being humble, but you will never be good enough. The essence of the Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself and saying, ah, yes, I would like to, but I'm not good enough. I am a sinner, a great sinner. You are denying God and you will never be happy. You see how Lloyd-Jones connects our joy, our spiritual joy, our real deep joy with our understanding of how we relate to God. Our joy comes from the realization that God himself is good enough and we are made a Christian because of what Christ has done for us. We are God's holy ones because Jesus is holy. We are reconciled with God because of what Jesus has done. He found us. He freed us. He favored us. And only when we understand that we are His saints on His terms by grace, because He makes us His saints, only then can we serve Him well. You know, the first point I made about us being called servants, that only works if we've already been made saints. You see, we can't really serve Him on His terms with the right attitude, with the right motivation, unless we have realized that we've been made saints, made holy by Christ. And because of that, it is that gratitude that becomes our motivation. It is that joy in Christ that we've been saved, we've been freed, favored by Him, found by Him, by the river. That He reached out to us, that He changed us, that He's transferred us into a different status, into a different sphere. When He considers us, He considers us as He considers Christ, His Son. And so for God to see us in Christ, for God to call us saints, to call us holy ones, to call us his children, all of that becomes the foundation for us being Christ's servants. And only if we put that in the right order can we actually serve him well. This is what we are in Christ. We are his servants. We are his saints. We are his followers. Now, since I've already been talking about grace, let me get into our, our last, second big point and consider what we have in Christ, namely grace and peace. Paul tells us that in verse 2, this is his greeting. He's saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. This is a standard uh, greeting of Paul's and a pretty typical Christian greeting even today. But how did it come about? Why does he say grace and peace? Why does he put those two together? It feels like a generic greeting to us today because we often just assume that. We read a letter of Paul's and we say, oh, he always greets everybody grace and peace. 
But he's actually doing something very interesting in this greeting. And in this greeting, we can see all of Christianity. Let me show you. A typical Greek salutation was greetings. So, for example, in Acts 15.23, when the church council wrote a letter to the Gentile Christians, they greeted them as Greeks would greet each other, as those people, obviously the recipients were Gentile Christians. They were Greek Christians, and so the apostles in Jerusalem wrote in the letter greetings, a typical Greek greeting. Paul changes it slightly by using another word from the same word group, so it actually kind of sounds similar. It looks similar if you write it. But instead of the expected greetings, Paul says grace. Instead of greetings, it reads grace. Isn't that interesting? That he changes it slightly, not completely, slightly, giving it very different meaning. Of course, this is how grace works. It transforms. It fills with meaning. Paul addresses the church as the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Do you see what he's doing here? They are still at Philippi. They're in their town, and yet they have been transferred into Christ. Saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. This is the same thing Paul is doing with the greeting. He's taken something familiar, and he changes it. Just like the people in, in the Philippian church, they remained in their city. They're still at Philippi, but they've been transformed, and now they are in Christ. Grace comes into our lives, and it changes us. Just like Paul takes a traditional Greek greeting, and he changes it to the distinctly Christian one, we too are transformed by grace. Grace doesn't transport us out of our cultures, out of our relationships, out of our communities, out of our jobs. It changes us, and it changes everything around us. So when you become a Christian, just like these Philippian believers, you in many ways remain who you are, and yet you are nothing like you've been. It's an amazing paradox of the Christian faith that grace renews us and changes us, it transforms us to the point where we can say, I am completely different now. Used to be an Adam, now I'm in Christ. And at the same time, you can say, I still live in the same place. I have the same friends. I have the same hobbies in many ways. I work the same job. The transformation is all pervasive. And so, yes, you can still be a person living in Hazelwood, but you're also living in Christ. You can be a person working the same job as an engineer or a nurse or, or a teacher, and yet you are now living in Christ, serving Him through those jobs, in those, those professions, and with the same people. This is, this is what Paul is doing. He's, he's taking something that is familiar but he transforms it by grace. Greetings becomes grace to you. Now, what is grace? Well, of course, I've already talked a lot about it, but let me just be very clear. Grace is God's favor to those who don't deserve God's favor. Grace is God's love 
for sinners. Grace is God's forgiveness of the guilty. Grace is God's salvation for those who cannot save themselves. Grace is Jesus, the innocent, dying for the condemned. Grace is the risen Jesus given life to the dead. This is grace. And when God treats you by grace, we are transformed. We are changed. Which is why Paul greets his friends at Philippi with grace to you. Now, to grace, Paul adds peace. Peace is a typical Jewish greeting, rich with biblical meaning. It is peace with God, peace with others, peace with yourself. It is creation functioning the way it is supposed to, in harmony. Peace is life in relationship with God, under His rules and in gratitude for all His gifts. So you see what Paul is doing. He's taking these two very profound, rich ideas, rich concepts from the Bible that define who we are and define what we have in Christ. And he's putting, putting it right in the beginning of, of the letter, every letter, in fact. And he, he does that to tell us, this is who you are, this is what you have. Now live out of that. Be that. Live according to what Christ has made you, what Christ has given you. Martin Luther said, these two terms, grace and peace, constitute Christianity. These two terms, grace and peace, constitute Christianity. I remember when uh, I ministered in Chicago in our church at Christian Fellowship, and I preached through the book of Galatians, and Galatians also begins with grace and peace. And I remember talking about this in, in the sermon on Galatians, and after that, we ordered two banners to put in the front of our sanctuary. One said grace, and the other one said peace. Because these two words actually communicate what Christianity is all about. I think Luther is completely right that these two terms, grace and peace, constitute Christianity. Notice that grace and peace come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God gave us. This is the essence of God's gift to us in Christ. These two words give us a summary of what we have in Christ. Now, I can preach the gospel from these two words. I don't need any more words. Just these two are completely enough to tell you everything that Christ has done for us. All the blessings that come from the Father through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Amazing grace. We just sang that. Amazing grace and perfect peace. Grace and peace, they go together. These are not separate things. They complement each other. Grace the cause, peace the effect. Grace the cost, peace the benefit. Grace the cure, peace the health. Grace the reason, peace the con conclusion. Grace the mother, peace the daughter. Grace and peace, that's, that's Christianity, that's the gospel. Transforming grace, sustaining peace. The grace of God produces the peace of God. More grace leads to more peace. And you can't really have peace, and joy for that matter, unless you have experienced grace, 
unless you are living by grace, unless you're basing your whole life on grace, the more we experience God's grace, the more at peace we feel. There's a connection. All-pervasive grace gives us all-pervasive peace. Sin-conquering grace brings worry-conquering peace. Blood-soaked grace creates rock-solid peace. Grace of Christ's sacrifice and peace of Christ's victory. Grace of His life given for us and peace of a new life given to us. Grace and peace, they enfold everything that God has done for us. Everything that God is doing right now and everything that God is going to do. Redemptive grace gives us peace with God. It reconciles us to God. What Christ did on the cross and in the empty tomb, his sacrifice, his victory, it actually unites us with Christ. It brings us back into relationship with God. That's redemptive grace giving us peace with God now. Sanctifying grace gives us inner peace, peace with ourselves. You see, when we're following Christ and the Holy Spirit is working in us, He is transforming us, He is deleting sin in our hearts, He is revealing to us who we really are in Christ and, and making us more practically shaped into that. As it's happening, we experience peace with ourselves because there's no longer an inner contradiction that at the very base of our identity. As the Holy Spirit is working in us, we are realizing who we are. We're being cleansed by Him. There's true repentance. There's true growth. We're actually becoming practically who we're supposed to be. And so it brings inner peace, peace with ourselves. And then future grace future grace of glory will bring harmony with all restored creation. Right now, we're still in conflict. We're certainly in conflict with the world, with the creation itself. This pandemic is an example of creation not functioning the way it's supposed to. These viruses, these things that mess up our lives, the economic hardships, this is not how it's designed to be. But God has promised that one day, when grace will have its full sway over creation, we will experience restoration. And when Jesus returns, we will be in harmony with all restored creation, with each other, with nature, with animals, with the world, with nature itself. Future grace will bring harmony, peace with all creation. Grace and peace this phrase, this greeting, encompasses what God has done, what He is doing right now, and what He is yet to do. Grace and peace. Do you have grace and peace in Christ? Have you realized your identity as a servant of Christ, as a saint in Christ? And have you appropriated grace and peace.